really appreciate Shane Tyus for um, doing what he did. I just love him so much too. Well, before we did the interview, I looked at him. Is he here? Yeah, he is here. I'm like, I love you. I love you. So that man, the Holy Spirit creates bonds. They're just powerful, right? Um, so we're doing what Blaine Shirley explained to you and Brandon, right? We're looking at the life, death, resurrection, and burial, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Um, and why is it significant? What did they? What did he accomplish? Why does it matter for us today, right? Now, if you are not a Jesus follower and you're here today, welcome. Glad you are here. If you're listening online, not a Jesus follower, glad you are here. The temptation might be for you, like, why on earth are we talking about, why is he talking about somebody that lived 2,000 years ago, right? Seems kind of odd. If you are a Christian and you're here, you're listening online, the temptation for you is every Sunday we talk about Jesus. And I have heard sermon after sermon about his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. Um, and you're tempted just to tune out, right? Or just kind of half pay attention. If this describes you, uh, I want to lovingly challenge you this morning. Remember who we are talking about. And if you're not a Christian, these things are really important. But even if you're a Christian, it's good to be reminded of these things if you already know them. First of all, and let me speak to the non-Christian, you've got to give Jesus a long, concentrated look for these two reasons. First, he is one of the most influential figures in human history. All historians agree about this. Many have him, Jesus, at the top of the list, right? The famous historian and English writer H.G. Wells wrote this about Jesus, and from what I understand, he died an atheist. Now, it is interesting and significant that a historian, he's referring to himself, without any theological bias, whatever, should find that he cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving a foremost place to a penniless teacher from Nazareth. The old Roman historians ignored Jesus entirely. They left no impression on the historical records of his time. Yet, more than 1,900 years later, a historian like myself, who does not even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant. How about Henry Bosch? Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men, who are among the greatest philosophers in all of antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest painting of Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspirations from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music, still Hayden, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, uh, not sure how to pronounce this next guy, uh, uh, composer, right? Uh, Ron Curzon does, he was at the other service, so he said it, didn't remember it, sorry. Reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, and oratories. 
They compose in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. Rodney Stark and, uh, is a historian and, and a, a sociologist of religion. He said there would be no Western civil, civilization if it wasn't for Jesus. Jesus' impact on human history is really, in my opinion, unrivaled. And in the, the opinion of many people who know better, unrivaled, right? Um, and what's more is it's even influenced by how Christianity is the number one religion of the world. Over two billion people are Christians. And what's unique about Christianity is most of the main religions, they all are concentrated where they started. Christianity has spread in high concentration all over the globe, right? So you gotta give Jesus a hard long look because he has impacted human history like no other. And secondly, because of the astounding claims and promises that he made. No, no other religious figure has promised what Jesus has promised and made the claims that he promised, or that he made, right? Um, for example, he, he claimed he was the son of God. He claimed that he was the true king of the world. He claimed that anybody who would receive him as king, um, he would uh, fulfill their heart's deepest longings for satisfaction and security and significance. He claimed that anybody who would receive him as king, he would give eternal life to them and that they would live forever on the renewed earth, free of Satan and sin and death. Like These claims and promises are staggering. So, you got to give Jesus a hard look. And, and if Jesus only made a great impact on human history and he didn't make the, the claims and promises he made, then treat him casually. Right? If uh, he um, made, if, if he, the other is true as well, if I can say it. Um, if he uh, didn't have the impact on human history that he had, but made those claims and promises he made, treat him casually. Like, why would you even, but he did both. So this is who we are talking about. Now, with the rest of the time I have, about 20 minutes, I am going to explain to you what Jesus accomplished in his life. The most, were you, have you guys been listening? The most extraordinary person the world has ever seen. We're going to cover what he accomplished in his life. 20 minutes. Go. Here we go. I'm going to do my best. Jesus fulfilled prophecy, fulfilled the law, learned obedience, perfectly revealed God. First, he fulfilled prophecy. Matthew 5, 17. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill now, one of the many things that makes the Bible so astoundingly different than any other thing that has been written is the number of events that it foretells accurately, um, sometimes centuries before they happen. Um, astrophysicist Hugh Ross, he says that there's approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, and 2,000 of those have already come true. I'm just thinking, if 2,000 are already done and accurately predicted, the other 500 prophecies that are still future are probably going to happen. Just saying. Good guess. 
Of the 2,500 prophecies that are in the Bible, 191 of them are in regards to this Messiah. This Messiah, this anointed special king from God, right? Some scholars say that's conservative. Some say there's 323 prophecies in the Bible about this uh, Messiah. Now, what are the chances of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies? Well, Peter Stoner, he was, he was the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College until 1953. He did the math and he found this out. And there was a whole team of, of mathematicians and scientists that also checked Stoner's work and verified that he was right. This is what he found out. That there, the chances of one person just fulfilling eight of those prophecies regarding the Messiah, there was a one, and I can't say that number. I looked it up years ago. I used to be able to say, I don't know what that number is. It's huge, you see? That's 10, I believe, with 17 zeros after it of just fulfilling eight of the prophecies. Uh, what are the chances of one person fulfilling 48 of the prophecies? That is one and a 10 with the to the 157th power, so that's 10 with 157 zeros after a chance of fulfilling 48 prophecies. What's crazy is Jesus has fulfilled every single one of the 332 prophecies. Now, if you are not a Christian, you're not a Jesus follower, what do you do with this? What do you do with this evidence? Um, how do you explain it? And if you are a Jesus follower, don't you see that our faith is not blind faith? It's based on logic and reason and historical facts. This should bolster your faith. That's why this matters today, that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. In fact, Blaise uh, Pascal, 300 centuries, or 300 years, sorry, three centuries ago, he said that Jesus' fulfillment of these prophecies was one of the main reasons why he came to faith. He, re he writes, um, if a single man had written a book foretelling the time and manner of Jesus' coming, and Jesus had come in conformity with these prophecies, this would carry infinite weight. But there's much more here. There's a succession of men over a period of 4,000 years coming consistently and invariably one after the other to foretell the same coming. This is, this is an entire people proclaiming it, existing for 4,000 years to testify in a body to the certainty that they feel about it, from which they cannot be deflected by whatever threats and persecutions they may suffer. This is quite a different order of importance. Um, so Jesus fulfilled prophecy in his life, right? Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the law. I'm warning you, this point's going to be long. And then I'll very briefly touch on the last two points. So don't midway through this point think, you know, he's still got two points to go. Okay? <laughs> Jesus fulfilled the law. Matthew 5, 17. So what, what did Jesus say? He said, I didn't just, I not, not only came, I didn't come to destroy the, the, the prophets, but I also didn't come to destroy the law. No, I came to fulfill the prophets, and the law. What is the law? Well, God, he's a loving creator and sustainer of the universe, right? And he created human beings to live according to his life-giving rules for maximum human flourishing, right? Now, Romans 2 tells us that God has written his law on every single human heart, which means that every person is born with an internal moral compass that tells them right from wrong. It's a God-given moral compass, right? 
Now, this means that uh, humans, by and large, know what they should do, right? That's what it means. Now, it wasn't until Moses uh, that God really specifically detailed uh, that God specifically detailed his law through Moses, right? And really got it down in concrete form. 613 laws God gave to his people through Moses. The first 10 are known as the Ten Commandments. And really, they form the foundation of the rest of the 603 laws. Now, the Ten Commandments are all about, and the rest of the law is all about, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. I mentioned in the last service that like, it's interesting that Christians are now becoming more focused on social justice when God has always been about social justice. What do you think loving your neighbor as you love yourself is? That is social justice. It's the definition of social justice, right? Anyways, what is, the, so, so the law, these laws, and especially the Ten Commandments, really, which sum up the rest of the laws, are a gift because they come from a loving God, and they define what is best for his people. I know many people who have viewed the laws that are in the Bible as this life-shrinking, soul-sucking thing, when no, they're beautiful and wonderful. Look, look at what Psalm says about the law. Look at what the psalmist had to say in, in, nine, in chapter 19, verses 7, 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Now, wouldn't you think that if God actually gets his laws literally etched in stone for his people that it would make it even easier for them to follow his law because now they don't just have it written on their heart they actually have something that could be read reread and memorized like you would think but it doesn't why was something wrong with god's law no the law was just as good as the psalmist just said it was what was wrong romans 8 3 tells us that people there's something broken and wrong with people not the law. The law is, it, it was good and remains good. Humans have decided with the free will, this gift God has given every person, to totally disobey God's life-giving laws. And so, especially for God's people who had the law written on their heart and also had the law on stone, guess what? It just made them guilty times two, didn't it? Without an excuse. You parents in the room, when you tell your kid um, and you're upset with them and you tell them, I told you specifically, da, 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 you're really upset because you spelled it out for them and they still didn't, you know, obey, right? This is true of God's people who knew the law. Now, what's the consequence for disobeying God's law? Well, if obeying the law brings life, what's the consequence of disobeying the law? Death. You disobey God's life-giving rules, death is the consequence. Now, some people may say, like, well, that just seems a little extreme. That must be an exaggeration. You mean to tell me when I sin, like, death really comes? Yes, it does. The stuff of death does come. Let's just look at the Ten Commandments. 
And I'll say this, I think that's up there. Sin is breaking the law of God and sin, Romans 6.23 tells us, brings forth death. So, for example, let's look at the first commandment in the Ten Commandments. What does it say? You shall have no other gods before me. Do you know the depression and the sadness and the anxiety and the worry that has come into this world because people have disobeyed this commandment and have sought happiness in many created things? Good things that they've made God things like career and sex and power and popularity and pleasure. Shane, did you, did you watch the video? It has destroyed individuals and families and marriages, right? How about the second commandment? That's the stuff of death. How about the second commandment? Exodus 28 and 9. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. I just spoke with Eric in our congregation. He's an infectious disease doctor right before our service over there. And he's about to take two weeks off of work after he's in charge of getting the vaccine out at Akron Children's Hospital. He's been working nonstop, hasn't had a weekend off in I don't know how long. He's like, the Europeans have it right in terms of their work-rest rhythm. Maybe it's for the wrong reasons, but the rhythm is good. We Americans don't. Do you know how many people have been destroyed because of workaholism? Right? Families, marriages, children. Right? Stuff of death. Third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. I just said that. Sorry. Next one. You shall not commit adultery. The number of families that have been utterly torn apart and destroyed because of this commandment that has been broken. Um, often, many of them never repaired. Right? How about... Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Oh, the power of words to destroy. Read the book of James. One careless sentence on Facebook, Twitter, whatever there is now, I can't keep track, can just utterly destroy another person in their reputation. The whole cancel culture thing, right? Oh, the power of words to destroy. I sat down with a, a pastor a black pastor uh, a few weeks ago he said that when he was in third grade the teacher he was up doing uh, like like what I want to be when I grow up the teacher told him you'll never be that because of the color of his skin he is over 50 years old and sitting down and talking with him that's still there third grade oh the powers of words they can bring life but they can bring Death. God brings death. Right? Okay. Now here's the thing. We've all participated in it. We all have used our God-given free will to choose death. We are the problem. Um, and whether it, for the non-Christians here listening, if you know nothing about God and his rules, guess what? You have his law written on your heart, and you have disobeyed what you, you knew to be wrong or right. You've disobeyed it, and you've done wrong. You're guilty without any excuse. If you have grown up in the church and, you know, whatever, and you have more knowledge, guess what? You're guilty times too. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's the thing. 
Due to our allegiance to death, what we have earned for ourselves is eternal death, which is complete separation from God, His goodness, His people, His world forever. We are the problem that needs to be stamped out. There's no way to get around it. And that's our faith. Because God is just. And he doesn't let the guilty go free. He wouldn't be a good God if he did. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be fair. Right? Now we turn to the facts of how will God end evil without ending us? Well... This is what we celebrate at Easter. All have, fall, all have fallen short of the glory of God and have earned physical and eternal death, except for one person, Jesus. Jesus, when he says that he came to fulfill the law, you know what he meant? He came to do every jot and tittle, they called it, of the law. He came to obey it perfectly. You know, uh, most people, when you meet them at first, you're like, man, I don't see any chinks in their armor. Then you spend time with them, and you see a lot of chinks, just like everybody else has, right? Notice what Jesus' disciples said about Jesus, even though they spent three three, uh, three, uh, years with him day and night. You know what they said about him? Well, John, one of them, said um, in uh, first, or Peter said in 1 Peter 1.19, Jesus is without blemish and without spot. He also said he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. John, one of the other disciples, said, in him there is no sin. Even Jesus' enemies couldn't find sin in him. Mark 14, 55, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. How about the Roman governor Pilate couldn't find sin in Jesus? He said to the crowd in Luke 23, 22, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death for him. Jesus so perfectly obeyed God that Philippians 2 tells us that he was even obedient to the point of death. Hmm. Wow. Even through death, Jesus was obedient. Now, why does this matter for us today that Jesus lived perfectly? Why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Jesus came and perfectly obeyed God's law so that his perfect obedience could be ours. This is why it matters. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the first man, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, many will be made righteous. Romans 3, 21 through 22 tells us how a person can receive Christ's righteousness. Look at what it says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. Christ's perfect performance record His perfect resume, his perfect righteousness can be ours as a gift that we receive through faith. What is faith? It is reliance and trust in God. That's what faith is. And so in terms of what we're speaking about today, faith is this, trusting and relying on Christ's 
perfect performance record to make you right with God because you realize that your own performance record can't do it. And even if somehow you can manage to never sin again, that doesn't erase the fact that you have sinned in countless ways and, and you have disobeyed the law and therefore justice requires your death. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Look, if we appear before uh, the judgment seat with our righteousness in hand, we are going to get what our righteousness deserves, which is eternal death. But if we show up at the judgment seat with Christ's righteousness in our hand through faith, we're going to get what? What He has earned and what He deserves, which is eternal life. Now, how does obtaining Christ's perfect performance record through faith affect me today? Why does it matter for today? One word. Peace. Do you have peace? Peace in the sense that I no longer have to fear the judgment that will surely come. Peace that I don't have to try and put together, you know, a, a bunch of good works and good deeds to somehow make myself, you know, okay before God. Peace that my eternity is secure. Peace that I know I'm going to be a part of God's promised future. This is precisely why Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you here today? Are you here listening online? Are you tired and weary of trying to create for your own self meaning and security and satisfaction? Are you tired? Are you burned out? Are you tired of trying to put together a sufficient enough life and record? <clears throat> Come to Jesus to find rest. Receive his perfect righteousness through faith. Mm. Peace, rest, true rest for your soul. All right, last two points. And I, this is going to be really quickly, really quick, briefly. Uh, we'll share these. Jesus learned obedience. That sounds heretical. Jesus learned obedience. I've struggled with this for a long time. We can't get around it because Hebrews 5, 7 through 8 says that uh, he learned obedience, Jesus did, through the things which he suffered. So it says it in the Bible, but it makes, I mean, when you read this, it sounds like, well, Jesus was once disobedient, so he had to learn how to be obedient, right? And I've been puzzled with this for a long time now. I think John Piper on this particular uh, passage is, is so helpful here. Let me just read what he wrote. Learned obedience means that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering, and then through suffering into tested and proven obedience. If you think about it, if you are good enough, you can learn a new task without failing. And the new task that Jesus had to learn every hour, especially at the end of his life, was... Can I endure this suffering that I have never experienced before? This new obedience that I have never performed before in the history of the universe. Can I learn and do this perfectly without failing, without falling into unbelief and murmuring? And the answer of Hebrews is yes. 
He could and he did. He learned obedience and what he suffered. And he never, never, never failed once in the process of perfect learning, proven, tested obedience. Do you hear what Piper is saying? Through his suffering, Jesus moved from untested obedience to tested and proven obedience. It's remarkable. Why does it matter? Why does this matter that Jesus learned obedience? I'm going to tell you why it matters today. Because Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we have a sympathetic Savior. And what that means is we have a Savior, and no other religion can claim this. We have a Savior that has experienced everything that we, have, that we experience. All the suffering that we experience in this life, we have a Savior that has experienced it. And this makes all the difference. Um, often when I think about that we have a sympathetic high priest, I think of the African woman who shared at the conference that I was at a couple years ago who went through the genocide in Africa. And let me just read her words to you. This is what she said. Together we pondered, her and her friends, problems that had confounded our people since 1994. Where was God during the genocide? Why does he permit such cruelty? How can God use sorrow? Each question led us to the cross where Jesus stretched out his arms to the whole human race. In the West, I've met people who cannot grasp why Jesus had to die. Couldn't God have pardoned humankind without that torture? But in Rwanda, where we saw evil unmasked, it makes all the difference to know that God's own son has been there too. This is remarkable. She's saying like, if... Our God wasn't a God who had suffered and who had stared death in the face and even experienced death himself. Our, we, would have, we wouldn't have made it through the genocide. And surely our faith wouldn't have remained intact. Don't you see that if you are being mistreated, Christ has been mistreated too? If you don't have a home and you're homeless, Christ has been homeless too? If you've been abused physically, mentally, emotionally, Christ has been too. If you've had your family turn on you, Christ has had his family turn on him. If you've been verbally attacked, Christ has been verbally attacked. If you've experienced injustice, Christ experienced the greatest amount of injustice. If you have had your prayers go unanswered or they weren't answered in the way that you want them to be, you know, Jesus has experienced that too. Is it, like, do I really have to go through with this, Father? Is there another way? No, was the answer. No, there's not another way. And yes, you do need to move forward with this, right? Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Jesus can relate to us. He can comfort us. He has gone through what we've gone through. And finally, and this is even shorter, Jesus perfectly revealed God. Um, God's glory is full of grace and truth, and Jesus in his life completely showed He showed that, right? Um, in terms of his grace, he came to live perfectly so that that perfect performance record could be a gift to us through faith. That's, that, that's quite an amount of, that's extraordinary, amazing grace. But also, you see God's truth, too. Because the question to how could God end evil without ending you is seen in his death. And we will get to that next week. But that's Jesus' death, where he took on your punishment, allowed God 
to be both just because he punished your sin and yet merciful because he didn't punish you. It's wonderful. So let me say this. In his life, what did Jesus accomplish? Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus learned obedience. Jesus perfectly revealed God. So to the answer, if I'm going to put an answer to the question, have you ever thought, why did Jesus, why didn't he just come on Good Friday, die, and then that be it? Why did he live for 33 years? Because he had to earn your perfect righteousness so that he could give it to you as a gift. He had to be tempted in all the ways that you were tempted, and yet without sin, so that he could earn for you a perfect resume that he could then impute to you through faith. That's why Jesus lived for 33 years. I think I'm done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, the truths about you are just so wonderful and so rich, and there's so much gold there to mine, and surely you accomplished many other things in your life, and um, Lord, I just pray that if there are a person here that they, they haven't put their trust in you, they're not living for you, you're not their boss, their CEO, their Lord, that they would see that living by their own self-determination and by being their own CEO is not working, that they would let go of that, that life and that they would turn to you because only in you can we have streams of living water coming into us, renewing us each day, making us into the people you always meant for us to be. And Lord, for the Christians that have made that decision that are here uh, this morning, I pray that this, what you accomplished for them in your life, that they would just be so full of gratitude and that their faith might be bolstered today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Hey, I want to say this. Um, has anybody here not received Jesus through faith? Like, think about this right now. Come and talk to me immediately after the service. Let's talk about it. Um, there will be no pressure. I want to be helpful. Also, if you have not been baptized and you have made that decision, or if you just made that decision and you need to be baptized, come and talk to me. I'm talking to two ladies about baptism after the service. Come join us. Learn. Okay?